Good evening. Our reading this evening is taken from Micah chapter 4, which can be found on page 932 of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. That's Micah chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished? The pain seizes you like that of a woman in labour. Rise in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labour, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon, and there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, Let her be defiled, let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations." You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. It's great to be with you, Um, and let's start, as we turn to God's word, let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, uh, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and fill them with your thoughts. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
I read recently that the book, uh, Bible books that are preached on the least frequently are in the section of the Bible that are called the prophets. Uh, parts of the books of the major prophets, that's uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and maybe some of Daniel as well, uh, well, these, pas- these passages might get a mention every now and again. But the smaller books, what are called the minor prophets, well, these, get, these rarely get a mention. Now, four reasons have been suggested why the books of the prophets are not preached on very much. Firstly, some people consider that the message of the prophets is harsh and the text doesn't include enough about God's grace and forgiveness, which isn't the case, by the way. The second reason is that the words that are sometimes used um, are flowery and sometimes they are difficult to understand. But that just means we need to look at the text more closely. Thirdly, the message of the prophets is difficult to apply to our 21st century daily lives. But this is understandable, really, when you realize that the words were written a long time ago. And the last reason is that the period or the historic age that the prophet is talking about is sometimes difficult to work out. Actually, this fourth reason is important because often the prophets mix or shuffle the time frames that they are talking about. Generally speaking, the books of the prophets focus on four time periods. Firstly, there is the immediate context. This would be the events and issues that they would encounter in their own lifetime. Secondly, there is the the near future. This would refer to events in, say, the next generation, say, in about 70 or 100 years. And for the prophets, this would have been during the invasion of the Assyrians and the Babylonian captivity or the restoration. The third period would have been the messianic hope. These would have been prophetic words about the life of Jesus Christ that we would, um, well, the prophecies that we were, that, of the events that we read about in our New Testament. And the last era is the last days. These would be, uh, these would refer to events far, far off in the future, at the end of time, at the end of the world. Sadly, when you, when we look at the books of the prophets, all these time frames can sometimes be jumbled together, even within one chapter or a prophetic sermon. And the Bible passage that we're looking at and focusing on this evening, in Micah 4, this is one of those occasions. In fact, Micah 4 works backwards. It starts with the end of the world, then steps back a bit to the time of Jesus Christ, and ends by looking at Micah's near and immediate future. But before we look at this chapter more closely, you may already be asking a question. Do I really 
need a message like this today? What benefit is there in looking at pipe dreams of a perfect world in the far, far distant future? I need real answers to real problems today. Is this Bible passage really, really relevant for me today? Well, let me answer those questions with a story. There's a story of a a granddad who was having a, a relaxed chat with his teenage grandson. And after a while, the grandfather asked, what do you plan to do with your life? Well, said the teenager, first I plan to get an education. Excellent, said the granddad. That's the best thing you can do. And then what? Then, said the grandson, I plan to study law. (laughs) Okay, you could do worse. Uh, And then what? Then I plan to be the best lawyer in the country. That's really impressive. And then what? Then I hope to make lots of money and visit other countries. Okay, and then what? Then I suppose I'll get married and I'll have a nice home. And then what? Well, then I suppose, then I'll grow old and I'll die like everyone else. The grandfather paused, looked straight at his grandson and asked the most important question of all. And then what? This passage in Micah 4 answers that question. And then what? This message provides the hope, the hope of the world that is yet to be. The hope that is rooted and grounded on God's promises. Oh yes, we need this message today. So let's look at these verses more closely. Um, It'll help if you have a Bible passage open. Micah chapter 4, it's on page 932 in the Pew Bible. And firstly, we see that there is a refuge in the Lord. Refuge in the Lord. It's interesting that the wording here in Micah chapter 4 verse 1 to 3 is very similar, actually it's practically identical, to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. And as Micah and Isaiah lived about the same time, and not too far apart geographically, there are some Bible scholars who go so far as to suggest that one prophet has pinched the text from another prophet. But that misses the point. Both prophets are emphasizing the reality of the world that is yet to come. My old Sunday school teacher used to say, take extra care and notice whenever the Bible repeats something. No words are wasted in the Bible. So there's a reason why God has repeated something. In this case, both Isaiah and Micah are emphasizing the certainty of a golden age in the future. 
In contrast to the doom and gloom and judgment of the prophecy in Micah chapter 3 that we heard about last week, these verses at the start of Micah chapter 4 outline the glorious hope for Jerusalem when it is under God's leadership at the end of time. And although this may seem a long time in the future, notice that Micah outlines three essential characteristics of this new kingdom in the future. Firstly, it is administered. Administered. Look at verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains and peoples will stream to it. The word translated here, established, means to be firm and secure. It's a word that's used to describe how a house is physically secure on pillars and foundations. In other words, this new kingdom at the end of time will definitely exist in a real and tangible way. This is not just a fancy idea that someone has dreamed up. No, this will be a genuine center of excellence of God's glory and holiness. A place where multitudes will flock to. Second aspect is that it will be merciful. It will be merciful. Verse 3, he will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. Verse 4, every man will sit under his own vine and no one will make them afraid. This is a description of judgment, but not in a negative way. This is not cold-hearted judgment, But rather it is God ruling with compassion and sensitivity and mercy. This is perfect judgment. It is judgment based on love and relationship. A judgment that produces peace and security and where no one will be afraid. The third aspect, it will be kingly. It will be kingly. Look at verse 5. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. It's interesting that the Hebrew word here for walk is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. For when God walked in the cool of the evening in the Garden of Eden. In other words, this is walking respectfully in the presence of the King of Kings and Almighty God. But it is also walking within the context of a personal love relationship with God. This is communion. This prophecy from Micah, which focuses on what he describes as the last days... This is echoed in the New Testament. In the penultimate chapter of the Bible, uh, Apostle John looks forward into the future. Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, 
The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. The old order of things has passed away. The answer to the question, and then what, is this. Emmanuel, God with us. The Bible is clear about this. For those who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, at the end of time, God will be our refuge. He will wipe away every tear. He will come to us and be with us. Are we ready to welcome him? Let's keep going. Um, A refuge in the Lord and the remnant of the Lord. The remnant of the Lord. Um, Micah now steps back a bit. uh, Back from the far future to look at a time that was for him in the near future. As I mentioned before, in Micah's time, the growing superpower in the world at that time were the Assyrians. Micah has already prophesied in Micah chapter 1 that due to the nation's sinfulness, Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel would be captured. And a little later... For the same sinful reasons, Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah would also fall. And history confirms that this is exactly what happened. These verses in Micah 4, verse 6 to 8, are now focused on the people of Israel and Judah that are living in captivity, both in Assyria and in Babylon. God promises Micah that even though the people have been taken from the promised land, God will bring back a remnant to Jerusalem. And God will reestablish his relationship with his people. The key word here uh, is remnant in verse 7. I will make the lame my remnant. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion. I think it is sad that although King Cyrus of Persia freed all the captive Jews and gave them all the opportunity of returning to Jerusalem and their promised land, only a small proportion, a remnant, Only a relative few number of people returned to Israel under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Sadly, most of the Jews remained in what was effectively self-imposed captivity. They turned down the opportunity of a new life and a new hope. But the remnant did return. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They re-inhabited Jerusalem. And they built the second temple. And it was to these people, this remnant, that Jesus lived among several centuries later. 
It was to these chosen people that Jesus is described in verse 8 as a watchtower of the flock. It's interesting that in Bible times, shepherds used a watchtower for two main purposes. Firstly, it was to protect their sheep by keeping a lookout for wild animals and bandits. But secondly, they used a watchtower to separate and to prepare the sheep that were to be used as sacrifices for the temple. By describing Jesus as the watchtower of the flock, Micah is declaring that Jesus is both the ultimate protector and also the ultimate sacrifice. Here then is a further aspect to the answer of our question, and what then? In those times of our lives when we feel lame or hobbling around from one crisis to another, Jesus is offering to be our ultimate protector and our ultimate sacrifice from sin. How will you respond? Lastly, we see the redeemed by the Lord. The redeemed by the Lord. Micah now takes one more step back from the near future and now focuses on the immediate future. Look at verse 9. Why are you now, why do you now cry aloud? The word now refers to Micah's present time and the struggles of his own age. And in these next few verses, Micah goes on to describe the agonizing trauma and judgment that the Jews will soon encounter in Babylon. But there's a glimmer of hope. It's like it's slipped in at the end of verse 10. You will go to Babylon, there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. This is God's ultimate plan and purpose for his chosen people. God is seeking to rescue his people. Why? For the purpose of having a profound relationship with each one of them. But this raises a question. Why does God allow his people to go through dark valleys and tough times? There's a story of someone who was watching a butterfly struggling to get out of their cocoon, the chrysalis. And, And seeing the struggle that the butterfly was going through, they got a scalpel and they carefully cut just an edge of the chrysalis. And it helped the butterfly to get out. But sadly, it died soon afterwards. They found out later that that the struggle and the effort strengthens the wings and the body of the butterfly and prepares it for flight. It's been said before that, but it's worth repeating, God never promised that our Christian life would be easy. Quite the opposite. Jesus warned us that we would have struggles. But what God did promise is that he will be with us 
in every step of our lives. The struggles in our lives are not to quash or overwhelm us, but rather to strengthen us and to build us up. They cause us to keep looking and focusing our attention on Jesus, the one who has promised to look after us and to redeem us and to rescue us and to save us. So really the question shouldn't be, and then what? The question should really be, and then who? Who are you placing your faith in to see you through the roller coaster that is life? Who are you depending on to redeem you and to rescue you? I agree that the uh, book of Micah is uh, it's tough going at times. The wording might be a bit harsh and the vocabulary may be uh, a bit poetic and flowery. However, they are still God's word and they speak and they emphasize God's desire to be with man. Experts agree that Michelangelo was a a brilliant artist. Probably his most famous painting is the creation of Adam on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican, which was painted around in the year about uh, 1510. And in the painting, the figure of God is making a great effort to stretch out to man. He's twisting his body to move as close as possible. God is facing the man and focused on him. God's arm is stretched out and his finger is extended straight forward, reaching out to the man. You can sense God's great desire to close the gap between himself and this man. But having come so close, God allows just a little space. Why? So that man can choose. God waits for man to decide if he wishes to enter into a relationship. By comparison, the body of the man looks lazy. He's leaning back as if he's not interested in making a connection. His arm is partially extended towards God with only a little finger needed to be raised. Man looks indifferent and not interested. Michelangelo wanted to make the point. It is not that man loves God and seeks to be with him, but rather... It is God that loves man and seeks to be with him. God is the one making the effort. God is wanting to include each one of us in his future plans, both now in the immediacy of life and for all time. God's desire is that we choose to enter into a relationship with him. But it's a free choice. God waits on your response tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us 
through your word this evening. Thank you that you seek us out and that your desire is to love us and be with us forever. May we not hesitate in entering into a relationship with you and then maintaining and living out the joy of that relationship. Thank you for the promise of your presence at all times, but especially during the dark valley seasons. Thank you for the comfort that your presence brings. And may your comfort and your promise spur us into action to be firm in our faith and shining lights for you in the world. And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.